Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Matthew Trenhale. Matthew, thank you very much for joining me. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Matthew Trenhale. Matthew, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Jake. Uh, looking forward to this very much. So, Matthew, for those who aren't aware, what's your, your background in the industry and how did you get started with betting and wagering? Well, I'll be honest with you, Jake. This is one of the questions I feared most of all the questions you could ask me <laughs> because you have these uh, illustrious guests who have the most phenomenal early childhood almost betting stories you know i'm I'm waiting particularly with the uh the aussie guests i'm still waiting for someone to say that their first bet was you know an exactor from the womb in the sydney carnival or something like that but Not far uh, away i was um I, I was very late to betting in fact i had virtually no interest in betting at all at school i wasn't the school bookmaker um i probably placed you know limited uh accumulator type betting shop bets on on football um but yeah no real interest in um in, in betting at all until i actually ended up working in the industry uh but one thing so i was trying to think to myself i know he's going to probably ask me this and i, I had to think of some way to tie into why betting is so interesting to me you know betting has become an obsession for my for me working in the industry I love studying it, love hearing other people talk about it, love talking about it myself. Um, And the one thing that I picked out that was very close, and you have to bear with me on this, uh, to sort of the betting world, was that uh, I was a huge fan as a child of a game called Top Trumps. I don't know how well this translates to international listeners, but Top Trumps was a pretty boring game whereby you'd have, I think it was 30 cards, and on those cards was uh, maybe types of car or plane or tank. And they'd have statistics for each sort of factor. So in cars, it would be the top speed or 0 to 60, uh, cubic size of engine, these kind of things. And each person, you'd split the cards between you and someone else. You'd each take a card from the top of your pile. You'd choose a stat. And in the original incarnation of the game, you would uh, choose a stat that you would say would be the highest. You compare it with your opponent's card. If you won, you both got both the cards, the game went on. It, it really was, in many ways, as boring as it sounds. But the appeal was the cards. So for my favorite ever Top Trumps pack was exotic sports cars. Um, this would be early 90s um, and... I think it was things like, you know, the Ferrari Testarossa and maybe early Lamborghini 
Diablo, that kind of thing. And uh, they're all the kind of cars that at that age I, I desperately wanted to own myself. Um, and I would just loved the stats part of it rather tragically. Um, very hard to get any other kids to play these games for any real length of time. Um, but I loved not only the stats, but I, I wanted to be tragically good at this. Um, so I would write down the stats, you know, pre sort of Excel kind of thing. I would write down the stats for every card, every category, and I'd rank them. So I knew who was number one for width of car. And you knew that the other kid, all the kids always wanted to compare top speeds, these kind of things. So if you went with height of car, which was really obscure, really, um, and so I, I, I realized that, I, to be honest, I love putting things in order and ranking them, basically. And I then got so into this, you can do a variant whereby you can choose to have the lowest stat. So you can choose when you call out the card, instead of going for the highest, I want to go lowest. And then it got even worse because then I found maybe one or two people who would play this extensively with me. And we created a what we thought of as a poker variant we sort of started to get into a little bit into again i never played poker but i liked watching it on a on late night channel four in the uk they did poker and the thing that i found most fascinating about that is they had the under the table camera through the glass and i i absolutely loved that but we we, got, we went with a poker variant whereby we deal out five top trumps and you then had to pick a category and you'd add up the stats for all five cars so you'd have to know how good overall the total was you can see where this goes so in the end like when you're a kid you add layers and layers of rules to these games and ultimately i thought to myself looking back there is so much of what's appealing <laughs> in doing that game that way that basically led me to really at the moment i walked into somewhere like ig index which was the sports spread betting company where i got my very first betting job and the idea of taking numbers and ranking teams, players, you name it. Um, and thinking through that process was just immediately appealing to me. And I graduated at some point from playing top trumps with my own silly rules to uh, playing a bit of Magic the Gathering, which uh, I'm, I'm glad to say uh, um, Gets a little bit of a look in now with betting conversations. I know that Ted Nutson, who, who's a big, uh, big player in the football statistics uh, industry, you know, he talks about how Pinnacle employed a lot of Magic the Gathering players. Um, he was very into the game himself, an excellent writer on the subject of the game as well. Um, so again, you know, I had the interest in stats and I got into games and the theory behind games. And that undoubtedly made it so that when I very first got a betting job, I instantly could see thing elements in betting that had appealed from that. So I have no fabulous first betting story, I'm afraid. Um, I have no family who've got any interest in betting. <laughs> um, and I never worked. I've never worked in a betting shop even or on the rails, on course, anything like that. Um, all I have is a rather tragic story about how I invented uh, a way to play top trumps in a slightly more interesting way. <laughs> no, it's it's not terribly unusual. Obviously, you mentioned some of the stories of, of betting out of the womb, but I think also Magic the Gathering has come up a few times. You mentioned, you mentioned Ted before, and, and Marco at Pinnacle mentioned he was interested in that when he started out 
you know, backgammon and chess and some of these multi-layered games, even blackjack, albeit a, a more of a closed system rather than you know sports betting and some of these other other options, which are almost unlimited and multi-layered and multi-factored. But it's a it's an interesting sort of different perspective, but it also ties in with what you can find with a lot of these people that have, I guess, developed over years and years, uh, albeit maybe not knowing um, this type of thinking and this type of approach, not just thinking one or two steps ahead, but perhaps even more. Um, absolutely. Um, for me, uh, the recent sort of discussions I've seen about Magic the Gathering, and I, I asked myself why, you know, Ted says that they had the perfect skill set for doing, you know, not just bookmaking, but sort of the sharper end of bookmaking. And I found myself thinking, do you know what? I, I often thought a lot of the people who played Magic were quite bright. Um, they often fell into sort of uh, the more studious, more academic category, those who are interested in it. And I thought, well, maybe it's just that. But the more and more I thought about Magic, and it, it's hard to explain without people who know at least a bit about the game, but it's a game where you build your own deck. You bring your own deck to the game, which you've designed and built to beat the other players. Um, and at the top level, it's an incredible exercise, not only in playing what is a very complex game with a lot of rules, but it is a great example of game theory in, in many ways, in that you're not just playing your deck, you're playing what they would call the meta, which is what other decks are going to be popular at that tournament, and certain decks in a sort of rock, paper, scissors style would be better against other decks. And then you start. I started thinking about that game, and I thought about, for example, betting models. You know, someone brings the expected goals model to the table if this was a game, while another guy brings his LO model to the table they have strengths, they have weaknesses. And I can see how if you just took these guys and said, right, the game is no longer Magic the Gathering. The game is the world betting marketplace and we've got to make money by creating odds that compare favorably for us to the to the marketplace. I definitely could see how, and, and, and one thing also I ought to add is that Magic the Gathering players love nothing more than breaking things. And when I mean, when I say that, they love to find cards and card combinations in the game that just completely destroy everyone to the extent that magic has got a long list of in professional play or, or high level play of having cards that are banned or restricted to only one copy in your deck because normally you're allowed four copies of a card in your deck and the reason they do this is because these people are exceptional at breaking the game over and over again, even though these games are play-tested by exceptional people um, at Wizards of the Coast, the company that, that sort of produces it. And so you've got these people who are just brilliant at understanding the game to the point whereby they can they can pick loopholes. And, and, uh, and I think that that is something that applies to most of the best professional gamblers. It's incredible curiosity, incredible desire to solve a problem um, and completely overpower the problem. And I think that, and so I started thinking about that and I thought, and then the other thing is, is it's got variance built into it, Magic. You know, there's a shuffled deck involved. Um, you can play exceptionally and still lose just due to uh, poor variance. Um, and then you add that to poker, 
because magic's not conventionally played actually for money it's there's tournaments and there's a big professional scene in it where there's quite high stakes prizes but then you add in people who play magic and poker and the poker people will really understand i I always think this is that sports betting people who have a poker background um they may be better or worse than the average at, at betting on sports but they definitely tend to understand variance um slightly keener to me because until you've played 10,000 hands you know of of hold'em or whatever it may be um it's it's hard to sort of understand how I, I love these pages you'll get where they show Monte Carlo simulations of like people playing blackjack or or, or poker heads up and you can just do the you can have an edge and do the right thing time and time again but still there's strands of that simulation which show you losing money hand over fist for huge periods of time so poker players understand they they don't get disheartened you know so you, you they turn up at pin, you turn up in curacao you know you've got a brilliant knowledge of poker brilliant problem you know magic the gathering of problem solving you know you're used to dealing in large amounts of money so you're not put off by that you're used to variance and you're desperate to uh, basically prove that you're smarter than the other guy. And when when I put all that together, I thought, yep, I reckon Ted's got it pretty bang right. That does seem just about the best person to employ if I was going to set up a shop bookmaker. So take us through IG Index. What were you there to do? And, and looking back, how did how did you go at it? Um, well, I, I got into it simply because I was desperate for money at university. Um, I was working in a shop, in a clothing shop. Uh, for big men, amusingly, for people, I am a big man, um, and it paid terribly, minimum wage. Uh, and I had a friend who said to me, how would you like to basically watch sport and, uh, you know, get paid much better for it? Uh, and it's you no know, evenings and weekend work, but it's not too many hours. And again, people laugh. The, the watching sport, I wasn't actually that bothered by either or, but they would pay... They would pay for your takeaway, your your food takeaway in the evening, which was hugely appealing to me. So um, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll interview for that. Went fine, got the job. So I was just working on the phones, taking bets. Um, this is going to be around 2002, I think. Back then, it's sort of online, I want to say uh, online was definitely coming. Definitely took plenty of bets over the phone, though. And so my very first interest real introduction into betting was spread betting so i sort of entered into a level which was already um i suppose treating betting and odds compilation as a much more intellectual activity maybe than than other people were at the time um and i was introduced to this incredible array of characters and personalities um brains and unorthodox brains at, at school and university you meet a lot of very academic people but you don't necessarily meet a lot of people who are thinking in a very different way. You know, there's nothing sort of pre-programmed about it. Um, and I, I kind of loved that. There were a lot of individuals. Um, and so I started working on the phones and I, I thought, this is, this is quite fun, actually. And I got to the end of my university degree, had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and then I thought, well, do you know what? that they pay quite well and I got quite into this and I've you know I've started to see you know how the numbers are put together and I'm thinking you know ah, I kind of see some you know pleasing ordering of statistics type things I like to do and I thought yeah no this this maybe is something I can give a go uh, and I remember asking the then head of IG Index who's a 
a fabulous man called Paul Austin, just a really wonderful human being. Um, whether he he would possibly consider me to be trained as a as an odds compiler, and um, and he was said yes immediately. He was very very considerate about. It. And he said he even told me that he said that he'd had a similar thing when I was his age, where he'd gone in and asked uh, for a job. Um, he'd worked largely in, in PR most of his life, but um, but yeah, he was a absolute lover of sport, lover of betting. Uh, and yeah, so I got my first job as a, a junior odds compiler, pretty much out of university. How did you go about like player profiling, as we'd call it now, with, with large spreads where you can have probably anomaly results or, or outliers quite often, where it's a, it's a large change in your bankroll probably? How did you think about uh, the players and I guess who was sharp, who was not? Uh, if I'm being brutally honest with you, Jake, um, the spread betting and I, I think from what I've spoken to people at Sporting Index who worked at the same time, uh, you were generally taught to believe that you were the best and that you knew better than anyone. And there wasn't the attitude maybe to profiling that there is now, certainly. Um, there were occasional individuals who were markers who we would treat the business, wouldn't necessarily allow them to have the, the full-size bet they asked for, but they'd still get a reasonable stake on, and we'd move the move the markets on their prices. But a lot of those weren't the traditional city types. It's, it's strange because you can be in a superb lawyer, accountant, broker, trader, um, but when you're having a bet, suddenly you, all those skills that you've employed in that profession don't necessarily translate to when you're, you know, so emotion is in in play, and you know you're 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 having some a bet on something that you're not used to, to necessarily being an expert on. So we're all fallible. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So the profiling was um it was was different then. There, there were people who played up in a strange way. Arbitrage and spread betting is is easier to see than it is in in fixed odds. In that you know if, if there's a gap between the two spreads, there's an arb. There were people who would play those and, and you know again even those were treated with a bit more sympathy is not the right word but a bit more sort of grudging respect in the sense that they would alert you again pre-strong internet days um, and there's never been a good odds comparison website for for spread betting firms we had to trawl our rivals market uh, websites to make sure and of course these guys would be trawling it all the time, the arbors, and, and they'd find it for you. And often they'd get, um, you know, five pound a point, ten pound a point here or there to sort of help you tighten up the market. But yes, I, I would say that some of the some of the really big betters, uh, the ones who had maybe big city backgrounds, huge bonuses each year, that kind of thing, we, we'd almost look forward to those with 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 glee to a degree in that. Sometimes being exceptional in your own field gives you too much confidence when you dip into something else. Um, so, you know, some of the biggest stakers also would end up being the uh, some of our biggest uh, losers. Yeah, I, 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 we were taught first and foremost to come up with a good price um, and, you know, and to be happy to stand by our price if we thought we'd come up with it correctly. And, you know, there was a... a Traders, we all knew, or everyone knew who was a trader at which rival spread betting firm. And so they'd call up and, 
you know, you then go on their website, maybe you'd see, oh, they haven't put odds up yet, but the trader from their firm is on. So we're going to get basically a little look basically on their direction early on. And, you know, sometimes, God, you know, it would depend on day to day. Sometimes these people would get short shrift and sometimes we'd be happy to, you know, take a, it. It was a lot of code of gentlemen or maybe it should be honor amongst thieves. I don't know which one, <laughs> um, but they, they very much treated it. You know, there were certain people who, in their minds, we didn't. They didn't take the piss. They would call up and they'd ask for ten pound a point, and it was considered a steer by them. And you'd be like, okay, that's fine. Um, and there'd be other people who you knew were trying to get a huge bet on, or alternatively, were getting their friends, wives, girlfriends, whatever it may be, you know, to try and get a bet on. And it was a, sort of a sense of. Mm, that doesn't that, that's not playing it fair and so as a result we're going to knock you're not going to get anything i would say that if you can i don't know in a fixed odds bookmaker you hear different numbers bandied around i'd hear two percent of you know bookmakers clients are winners or whatever it may be i'd, I'd say in spread betting you know it, it was smaller still because you know the average joe struggles to to really understand it yeah more generous i think in a lot of ways than it is now that's for sure yeah so you touched on a little bit but how do you throughout a cricket match or a a golf tournament or a golf round how do you uh, evaluate what's happening you mentioned you might have someone from a fixed odds bookmaker place a bet or you might have you know the the city banker you know who's going to lose place a large bet you've probably got the arbors in there as well and you've got a whole bunch of other people and other information coming in how are you treating all that information and does it differ between you and, and some of the other guys you mentioned earlier? Is everyone have their own style and approach ultimately or are you pretty much sticking to certain foundations? Um, I think everyone adopted to, to a degree their own, their own style and approach. Uh, you know, we, we were told that the company had deep pockets. You know, we, we could uh, this changed after I left, I, I have to say. But, you know, but certainly back when I was doing it, the attitude was we were happy to take a swing. You know, it doesn't matter if you lost a lot of money on one match, provided you lost it doing the right types of thing. Um, so when accumulating all that knowledge that comes in, for me personally, I, I always wanted to move my odds around on, on the cheap marks. Um, but also I would I would move them a little bit off, off the big size bets. I wasn't hugely stubborn. Um, and quite often, especially when you're junior, you're doing, uh, less liquid, let's call it less liquid sporting events. Uh, you know, you may not take a huge amount of bets and there was this desire to sort of <sighs> smooth your P and L a little bit out on it. Um, but some of the other guys there would happily take, you know, 500 pound a point, thousand pound a point on things, you know, runs could easily be, you know, several thousand pounds long or, or short of the, the total runs in a, in a cricket match and those guys would happily just just take it you know the we knew that we didn't have a huge amount of customers and we knew that even fewer than the amount of customers we had were the ones that would bet big and lose big so in a way you had to make sure that, that you know you got that business it was difficult to knock it back or even ask if they could bet in a smaller size um so you had to again it came back to making sure that you had a good you know good price 
And, you know, we, we were always comparing, and IG had a, a bizarre scenario whereby we were always comparing ourselves to Sporting Index, who were definitely the largest and, and still still the largest, what, what's left of them, sports spread betting firm. And and spread betting thrived on, in, in the same way as fixed odds betting, thrived on people wanting to bet wish fulfillment, bet, you know, betting on what they want to see happen. So they bet on action. They buy goals. They buy runs. Uh, they, you know, it's always on the buy side. They want to see things happen. And because Sporting Index had the lion's share of, of the recreational punters, they could always afford to be one or two uh, ticks higher than, than us. At least that was always our perception. I mean, it may not always have been true, but in our minds, they often were higher and they could afford to be higher. And it was right for them to be higher because they would extract more money out of their client base. Um, we, on the other hand, if we'd gone up with the same prices as them, um, would have got, you know, a much. we might have got some buyers. We also, you know, had to entertain quite a few people who were not necessarily long-term winners, but you had to work to get the money out of them. And so we won't, don't want to give them cheap, you know, easy sell opportunities. So we would often be a little bit lower than them. And so you constantly have that frame. You know, whenever you traded anything, we had the other spread betting firms' websites up. You know, you had to know where you stood in terms of the market for us. And then on top of that, we generally would, you know, most people felt like they had to uh, – lay a decent sized bet especially to the people that we knew were you know recreational and then you know i don't know a lot of if you took a phone bet this is pretty sort of major internet if you took a phone bet from someone who was uh known to be particularly sharp or or an arbor it, it kind of sometimes would depend day-to-day mood to mood sometimes they'd tell them they can have nothing and we'd move the price and other times people would get um you know a bigger bet on and we'd use the information happily i think the the strange thing is is that we had profiling notes on the accounts and yet there were certain accounts where everyone had their own opinion in their own head about how they really should be treated so um but when you know when the internet was more when when we were taking more bets over the internet uh, everyone had a ticker up and could see the bets come through and could react uh, as they saw fit really um so i would say we were given far more there's far less risk structure you know in fact we didn't even have uh, risk managers as they call them or, or separate risk people um until sort of towards more towards the end of my time in, in at ig in fact so the traders were in charge of calling calling the shots with how they wanted to shape their book and who they let bet and and what size they bet in. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. With that in mind, then, take us back to the pricing of of a match or an event. Mm-hmm. Were you outsourcing any of that? Were you just looking at the market? And I know now it's probably largely consolidated and there's certainly a different approach from certainly fixed odds bookmakers and, and being sort of around sort of the market price. What was it like back then and did it change at all? Um, in terms of outsourcing, we did not uh, sell our because sport uh, IG Index in the end had a, a fixed odds website. 
um, called ExtraBet. And in between that, we actually had a, a, a website called BinaryBet. And BinaryBet was spread betting where the only two outcomes were zero or 100. So it was like Betfair, in effect. You could buy or sell, and it was the equivalent of backing or laying. Um, and then we had ExtraBet, which was a website, fixed odds website, whereas the first website, um, to my knowledge, I'm, I'm almost certain, because spread betting lends it, which we had cash out. And what I find amusing is that we had a, a launch party for ExtraBet 2004 or five, something like that. Um, and they showed a demo of cashing out and people laughed and called it absolute shit. Um, so there you go. Turns out you can just find things at the wrong time. Um, but yes, yeah, so we had all this information being churned out by the models for fixed odds. And in reality, looking back, we almost certainly should have outsourced it and sold it. Sporting Index did. Sporting Solutions now is a huge part of their product. Where they sell out live odds and, and odds, but we didn't. But what we did do was we market made into Betfair and into BetDAC back then. And that really did change. That was a huge dimension to the business um, because then your traders market making the generating liquidity for the exchange but they're taking positions on the exchange fixed odds they're taking positions on the spread bets and they're effectively on the exchange they're proprietary trading really um to a degree and then on the spread bets you know they're trying to you know maximize some recreational business there on the exchange they weren't necessarily up against recreational type betters although back then betfair arguably did have more recreational type punters so in terms of outsourcing information there, there was a period where the market would probably be getting good information out of ig's models and expertise and experience by looking at betfair particularly i mean there were some sports that we provided liquidity for like rugby which you know you go on betfair now and it can be absolutely dry there's no money on there at all um, and so that information could have quite easily have been filtered into the marketplace but we we never we never went round down the the selling odds to other people route like uh, like Sporting Index did. Sorry, I've, I feel like I've skipped away. No, no, I'm just interested in pricing and how you get to your obviously putting out a market and uh, in the spread betting world or a landscape, and I guess how you compiled all the different elements that go into it. Um, yeah, I mean, hugely stats and mathematical model driven, basically. Uh, most of the um, Original sports spread betting models were built by sort of a handful of, of people. Um, and again, a lot of it just comes from, you know, white papers, the kind of stuff you academic papers you find online, you know, Dixon Coles, the sort of classical early football model. Um, you know, OK, so we've got a we've got an idea there for sort of, you know, early expected goals. How do we create, you know, goal inputs, you know, I don't know if it was as bad as this when I started, but, you know, it could have just been guys averaging how many goals were scored and how many goals were conceded the last 10 games or whatever. Um, but you got those inputs in and then you plug them into the models that have been designed for us. Initially, they would be just uh, spreadsheets that would produce all the derivatives. You put in your always your model drivers. Um, so in the example of soccer for the international audience, it would be your supremacy and your total goals. Um, supremacy is something that we were familiar with from spread betting and the Asian market was familiar from Asian handicaps, but supremacy is not necessarily a phrase that actually 
sort of you know people who came from a fixed odds betting background and spread betting sort of wouldn't necessarily have heard that term or that phrase but then you derive from your total goals and your supremacy uh goal expectancies for the home team and for the away team plug them into the model which you've probably got off the internet and then refined using your own maths guys or your own you know didn't call them quants you know it was generally the guy who was good on excel or whoever it was and then that would spit out all the derivatives and then you'd ask yourself how can we then move this model in running because you know if you did something quite good if you did quite a good uh LO model say for soccer which was a lot of them were originally it's hard to translate easily into inputs and then those inputs are what you really need to drive a live model in the end you just start by just coming up with the inputs first so the, the goal expectancies and then plug them into the model and that would you know do the rest even back then and i think possibly this was happening more maybe at sporting index than it was in ig but there definitely was creeping in the knowledge that we could take odds from asia derive the supremacy and the total goals from that and then put those straight into the models and you've already got a little hint of where the industry is heading you know you're not paying someone so much to come up with that but uh, most of the traders i knew back then they, they wanted to come up with their own numbers and you know and they did they would look at betfair they'd look at asia but they were being paid really well that back then the salaries and spread betting were really good um and they wanted to prove their worth if you like um come up with their own numbers but yeah there's no, there was always emotion and feel were generally frowned upon in spread betting and and the way that we had taken odds compiling so statistically was a badge of honor in in spread you know that we did things differently to the fixed odds firms and we crunched the numbers and we built databases you know which weren't you know now the data is every time on the internet every day on the internet i'm blown away by some new repository of data that i can't believe someone's giving away for free when i was sat there having to plug numbers into spreadsheets like when the goal minutes when goals were scored and corners and all this kind of stuff and now there's someone out there who just can you know spit it all out you know for free yeah it's, it's very different so how do you see it changing or evolving as i guess consolidation happens of of pricing do you think that makes the market potentially more beatable in that you may only have a handful of businesses or people or models out there producing mass prices for the industry i vacillate day to day in the in that my mind initially says that the less um amount of market makers so independent thinkers in a market uh the weaker the market will be and therefore this homogenized pricing where there's only a handful of people with trading rooms and coming up with prices is going to be very detrimental to the quality of pricing and then other days i think to myself do you know what as long as everyone is just trading the liabilities sensibly enough we'll get to a decent price anyway now that's a big if let's say everyone had to take the same price everyone had to take the same tissue from one central odds compilation uh depository let's call that depository bet 365 um so everyone takes their odds from one location um and puts up their odds now that set of odds is only going to be as good as um the odds compiler who originally came up with that original line 
And then what you need is for each one of those groups of people to trade their client base who they've acquired through whichever promotional or marketing strategy is to to trade their liabilities. And one of the problems I think we have in terms of pricing quality is people don't really trade the liabilities, or if they do, they don't necessarily trade them correctly. So we don't get the price differentiation that should occur. You should have 10 people, even if they all took the same odds, taking different bets, moving their odds in accordance, ARBs open, ARBs close, ARBs open, ARBs closed. You know, maybe it's Slovakian soccer and some bookmaker in Slovakia has got some very sharp clients on it. They move dramatically one direction. That then influences the rest of the market and that information filters through. But no one ever wants to have an ARB ever. You know, no one wants markets to behave how they're supposed to behave. And they, everyone wants the perfect price and they want no arbitrage getting to the perfect price. And so you get these people who are basically copying a small amount of bookmakers who may or may not be trading their liabilities. And even if they are trading their liabilities, you've not taken a bet. You're following someone else who's taken a bet and moved their odds. So for me, it shouldn't matter really who comes up with the odds or how many people come up with the odds, providing everyone trades it correctly. However, I do think there is a problem if you've got lots of people, you know, because consolidation is such now that there are some phenomenal companies who will provide you a bookmaker out of a box, you know, right from payment processing to odds fees to live trading to risk management to you name it. And my hope is that these companies and the bookmakers who use them will recognize the importance of trading their exposures correctly, trading their liabilities correctly, um, and moving their odds around. And, you know, you, you've got to you've got to get a little bit of the pinnacle in you, in a way, in that, you know, if you take a big bet, ask yourself, is it wise just to not move the odds at all? Or if you take a bet from someone that you think is sharp, well, at least move. I'm not saying that everyone should be pinnacle and they can't be pinnacle, but the idea that everyone takes this one feed and the only time that feed moves is when the bet 365 of this world takes a bet and decide to move their odds. You know, right right now there's sort of a, a recreational bookmaker average feed and it gets moved up and down basically by the movements in Betfair, Pinnacle and, and maybe the Asian market where the sort of perceived sharp sources will, will nudge it around. But I'd like to see, and you know, and people sort of say, <clears throat> but people seem to sort of have mixed feelings about about liability trading. But for me, it's it's simple in that I think a lot of people think liability trading means two players playing in a tennis match, take a bet on A, make them shorter in order to try and get a bet on B to level your book. You know, people seem to think that bookmaking is, you know, an exercise in trying to create green books. It's absolutely not. It's a terrible way to run a bookmaker. You never really want balanced books in in truth, because if you've done your job correctly to acquire recreational customers, the herd mentality in betting means that they'll consistently bet on the same outcome as their fellow recreational bettors. So what you want to do is take a bet on player A, make it a bit shorter. Next customer has a bet on player A, you've booked it at a better price. You move it again. Player three comes in, bets it. You booked it at an even better price. You basically get phenomenal averaging in at a great price level for something which you make the true price further away from. And you can only, you know, if, if you think that after any given bet placed on a market, 
it's more likely that the next bet you take is going to be on that same side of that market. You've got to do the math. You've got to realize that, well, okay, I need to make people pay up over and over again. A lot of people don't have recreational punters or they try and do this model, but they do it on very low level sporting events where they're going to take only one bet maybe or something like that. Those absolutely not, but just the general principle that, you know, everyone should try, you know, the, the guy, let's say you're trading French, you know, French football, the French bookmakers should be doing, if they're taking loads of money on Paris Saint-Germain, the favorite, you know, they're getting beaten. Well, we're in a world whereby they don't ever want to move those odds because it creates arbitrage opportunity. But if they've built their bookmaker correctly and their proportions are right, so you know they've maybe got 2% sharp punters and 98% recreational French punters, and those 98% are all betting Paris Saint-Germain, they're all allowed the same bet limits. The smart guys are allowed you know, similar bet limits. You know, profiling is a difficult subject. You know, then yes, you know, you you, you want you make more out of uh, correctly trading the recreational side of the book. But we've got so many bookmakers. You know, there's only so much recreational money to go around. Um, I do get why that's that's difficult. But for me, yeah, the I've got no problem with everyone taking one price from one place. We just got to get clever about how we trade the money when we do take it. Um, that would be my thoughts. So you mentioned Pinnacle and they obviously probably enjoy arbitrage because they're more than likely on the the right or better side of the arb generally. Tell us why, from your perspective, there can't be more Pinnacles out there. Well, I mean, interesting. I mean, Marco Bloom, Bloom touched on this, is that, um, is that there's a, a huge barrier to entry in terms of how you, how you get that business off the ground originally. Um, what I find interesting is that, you know, people, people forget just how much uh, American money Pinnacle had, how many American customers. And I think people assume that Pinnacle is incredibly, you know, only essentially only has sharp punters or people who know what they're doing, at least. Um, and I, I believe that Pinnacle at one point, you know, will have had genuine, just good recreational business. And they what did Ted say? They lost 70% of their business overnight when they turned off, when they turned off the States. Um, and so that must have meant a slight change in business model, I'm guessing. Although some of those American players obviously would have been very sharp players, I'm sure as well. So that you get this model whereby they basically work by being a enormous betting syndicate that is basically arbitraging against the soft bookmakers of the world and they're utilizing decent own models and uh, and the markers within their own system who they profiled correctly and they've you know they've got very keen mar- uh, keen overrounds already so you've got a company who is in place already taking a lot of the uh, arbitrage business that's available they've heavily affiliated themselves with the arbitrage alert software in fact they can probably afford to rebate you know properly affiliate style deals with arbitrage software because their arbors are you know they're losing clients you know this is the tragic thing is if you're if you're pinnacle every day you don't close any clients and yet every day thousands of your clients are being effectively closed because they get closed by retail bookmakers but fortunately there's plenty of people who want to you know 
do the work from home, make easy money arbitrage thing. So they've got new new meat in the mill. So if you're a new bookmaker who thinks, right, I'm going to take this on, you've got to have an overround that's small enough that you can generate the similar style arbitrages, and then you're going to be better at spotting the arbitrage opportunities than Pinnacle already are. And if you want to be better than them and make sure that you actually make room for the arbitrage to even appear, you potentially have to not only be better than them, but then you also have to have an overround that's um, tighter than theirs. And then you need to get clients you know pinnacle will will happily say i'm sure that you know yes they, they obviously put work into their models but a huge amount of you know what they make money is the proprietary information from the from the clients who bet with them so you've got to get smart clients in and have a reduced overround and make sure that the smart clients you're in are smarter than the smart clients at pinnacle not to mention there's going to be some guys out there who are going to you know i'm sure double dip you know they'll, they'll hit pinnacle first then you and maybe they can do it fast you know you cut you have to have a huge technological arms race available you have to be able to make sure your prices are moving perfectly and the, all, all the movements are, are sort of super slick and the profiling is perfect you just need to do a huge amount to compete in that particular space and all the while, you've got to assume that if you're doing something this to this level of professionalism, this kind of quality, and putting this much thought into it, why the hell are you doing it to make comparatively little money? You know, P- Pinnacle is a is a you know a very profitable company, but they're not Bet365. You know, building a, a phenomenal retail recreational bookmaker is more profitable if you can do it you know really well. Pinnacle's got low variance, I picture, in their profitability. You know, they're pretty consistent in the same way that any Arbor, if you've worked in a retail bookmaker and you've looked at an Arbor's account, and it seems like they never bloody lose. Well, you know, guess what? They are losing. They're losing at Pinnacle, and they're doing it pretty con- as consistently there as, you know, they're winning off you there. So, you know, it's great cash business, you know, lots of money being made. But, you know, even bigger money is to be made by being a great recreational bookmaker of the of the top level or alternatively if you've got people together who've got the intelligence and brilliance to put together something that beats pinnacle consistently why aren't they in a hedge fund yeah right why aren't they why aren't they some why, why aren't they employing these things elsewhere pinnacle just caught lightning in a bottle brilliantly intelligent people maybe didn't want to work in finance maybe just didn't want to be conventional maybe wanted to do things their own way and they leveraged this intelligence to create a system that just worked so well. And, you know, their own success makes it hard to break in. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to say it's impossible, but I have to think that the kind of person that wants to do it has to absolutely love and embrace the intellectual challenge that they face. I mean, I read a recent article about the guys um, – there were two guys, American guys, weren't there, who did a huge, the massive Hong Kong pools. I read a brilliant long interview with the guy. Yeah, Bill Benter. That's the one, yeah. And you look at that guy, he could have made more money, absolutely more money on Wall Street, no, no doubt about it. He's just an exceptional, brilliant individual. 
but he liked horse race. He liked that particular game, you know. And it's you know if, if you if you know that you can beat a variety of games or you think you can, you just you just picked just picked the one he wanted to beat the most and the one he was interested in. And you know, so you kind of need to you know Pinnacle 2.0 or whoever it may be has to be someone with huge intellectual curiosity, uh, brilliance, and deep pockets to get it off the ground. One thing I will say is is that I Pinnacle, you know. Magnus Hedman, who owns a good portion of them, he owns a good portion of Sporting Solutions, and he owns Touchbet outright. You know, three big betting companies. You know, that's a lot of balls to juggle. And you know, their Pinnacle just announced B two B. They never ever would have touched B two B once upon a time. It was all about getting individual, you know, clients to the door. Um, you know, we're talking about selling Pinnacle's own profiling to the world and to that. You know, so. I would say that I would definitely be looking to see. Not, not, I'm not. They may not drop their standards at all. They may go from strength to strength, be as brilliant as they've always been. But there's definitely an opportunity right now. It's, there's different people. In the moment, someone sold out that huge share to Magnus. Someone kind of cashed a good portion of their chips, is the way I see it. And I don't know. Sometimes these companies are so hinged to the ethos and mentality of the original early investors the people you know, look at andrew black with betfair um and the slight changes that happened to when those core people of betfair moved on i'm fascinated to I'm, i will be watching like a hawk for what where the binnacle model goes um you know it's interesting i listened to a podcast just the other day someone said pinnacle limits are much lower and it's true you know you look compare pinnacle limits on things you know 10 15 years ago they were higher and the way I see it is business has gotten tougher for them. You know, I don't know if they envisage quite how ruthless profiling would go in the record. You know, they're, 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 you know the clients who their arbors, are, who they're their agents placing their bets for them, basically, in the arbors, having a harder and harder time of it. You know, you used to hear about arbors who are making, you know, six figures a year, you know, 10 years ago to do earn six figures an arbor now, you know, it's just incredible it's an incredible exercise and in basically opening up accounts and other people's names effectively so i i yeah i'm very interested to know like you see the, the drop in those limits they can't afford to pay people the same amount for the inf- you know salaries have dropped at pinnacle hq now if you're someone providing information to pinnacle or, or getting bets on for them effectively you know they're willing to pay you less per movement you know before they'd give you two grand at something and then they'd move it you know the couple of ticks and now they're willing for the same amount of information to pay you 500 for it so yeah i am i'm very interested so in, in terms of could someone step in and and do pinnacle to more pinnaclish standards I, I can't rule it out but i i definitely if someone came to me with there's a business proposal uh, i just you could not be high on my list of things i'd spend money on yeah that's interesting so i i want to ask what excites you about the betting industry, betting markets as they are today, are you looking at exchanges or fixed odds betting or paramutual spread betting, whatever it might be? What are some of the areas on the betting or bookmaking side that uh, that get you excited? Constant eyes on the evolution of, of pool bets. I mean, Colossus bets is, is a big thing in terms of you know pro- proper product development that's happened. I say product development, you know, paramutual's old as the hills. Um, but the the sort of the the syndicate betting options they're offering i god i mean the british horse racing is a bit of a mess so i don't know how you know the 
the tote has done, you know, Betfred's side of the tote has done a deal with the Hong Kong Jockey Club to merge pools or something, and then Colossus has got some access to it, but another company's like, I, I'm fa- I, I feel like uh, Australians have had essentially a, a, a pretty, whatever you say about the tab, I mean, they kind of done Paramutual pretty well, right? I mean, I, I feel like they, they kind of run, you know, decent-sized pools well kind of thing. Um, and I feel like the, the pool system has, you know, Bet, Betfred took over the tote, and, you know. It's funny because uh, Bernard Matron, I probably butchered his name, but of course, but it's actually, had, had, you know, was quite uh, lenient on, on Fred Doan, who had Betfred about, you know, how the, how he feels, you know, he dealt with the, the pools and he sort of said words like sort of slightly mismanaged or maybe not the right route. Other people I'd speak to would say it's the worst thing that's ever happened to anything in betting ever. But I'm excited to see if, if, if those things can be sorted out, if horse racing pool betting can be done better in the UK, where, you know, as I say, smart people can get on without any problems. And, you know, if that pool betting can be transferred to more sports, that's interesting. I watch with interest as to how, you know, cryptocurrency is going to affect. Uh, are we going to see more and more um, cryptocurrency bookmakers keep on growing and growing? You know, they create an interesting dynamic in terms of you know obviously your your cap your bankroll changes daily on the fluctuation of the currency it's harder to profile people or rather it's harder to keep people uh, accounts closed on crypto you know if crypto really stabilized if it became less volatile there'd be plenty of uh, serious betters i think who'd really start to make the contemplate about doing more of that um, because it's a bit of an easier ride in terms of, you know, you can open a betting account with, uh, you know, just an email address in crypto. Um, so it makes it easier for the for the pros to reopen. You know, in a way, if you're deliberately closing crypto accounts over and over again, you're sort of really up against it. You know, you start having to try and track all sorts of things that, you know, we can debate about how nice it is to track, you know, IPs and device IDs and all these kind of things. And I, I think that if crypto stabilizes, maybe Pinnacle 2.0, because the processing fees aren't there, reducing fees and, and it, keeping a super lean business, if you want to create the second Pinnacle, is key. So, you know, could the second Pinnacle be a, a cryptocurrency bookmaker? That That's something that interests me. I think... Uh, with the increased betting opportunities in America that are coming, you know, I think it's going to be slower than people think, but I think that should be a pretty, you know, courtesy of the DFS industry, there should be a pretty huge explosion in prop betting. I'd imagine on player player based props, um, you know, the American market loves to analyze stats of individual players, all their sports pretty much lend themselves to the analysis of individual player performance. Um, so with that explosion in, in prop betting, traditionally prop betting has been something that all pros, pro punters or, or serious punters want to be doing. They all think they've got a phenomenal, or most, well, probably most of them do have a phenomenal edge on it, but you've got very small limits. They maybe limit themselves to only doing it at the Super Bowl, that kind of thing. More and more people doing it, pricing will get a bit keener, maybe limits will get a bit higher. The people who are just making easy money off it will disappear as the edges disappear a little bit. But maybe then, you know, the thing is about player props is people think, like, oh, I can only get, you know, 200 bucks down or 500 bucks down on it. Well, 
how many, you know, an MLB slate each evening, you know, how many different players can you play? You know, you play every single player prop in every single game for every player, you know, that $200 or whatever multiplies out really fast. And what's interesting is there's these DFS people who've taken like individual player analytics to, you know, sabermetrics baseball style is extended everywhere. So you've got these guys who are probably absolutely desperate to have some decent player props and player props in running, not just pre-match. And then there's going to be bookmakers employing DFS guys. So, you know, there's going to be a little bit of uh, poacher turn gamekeeper stuff going on and potentially then that I'd love to see that player props market and live player props market really explode. I think that'd be, you know, a very interesting area to go because the, I mean, the American betting market is pretty stale. It's, it's pretty singles and parlays and pretty much all, all pre-match stuff, you know, it's sides and totals. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping for a revolution in British horse racing pool betting. Um, I'm hoping to have a clearer view on cryptocurrency bookmakers and I'm hoping for uh, an opportunity to bet on, you know, how fast someone runs between two bases under and over in uh, a couple of hundred dollars a pop. <laughs> no, it's a fascinating list. Some of the topics keep coming up, so I think there's a few with a keen eye. Matthew, I appreciate your time from Magic the Gathering all the way through uh, to the US market opening up in fun chat, and I, uh, I certainly do appreciate it. Thank you very much.